Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have AJ Loicano. He is the CEO of Capital RX, which is actually PBM. So you're the first PBM I've actually had on the podcast. And you've worked in leadership with several other companies, including Truveris, SMS Partners, and Victrix, if I got them all in there. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Loyacano. Uh, thanks for having me, Eric. So I have to ask this. like, What made you want to hop in like the dirty industry that is PBMs and like all the games <laughs> they play after all this time? Yeah, you know, sometimes life just leads you in a certain direction. So for myself, I've spent, I guess, 21 years in the pharmacy supply chain. What makes me a little bit unique for someone who runs a PBM now, I guess, is I started in pharmaceutical manufacturing on the plant side doing supply chain software conversions on software. I did that for seven, eight years, traveled the globe for some of the largest manufacturers uh, shortly after that company was sold, I started a company called Traveris that did audit and procurement for self-insured entities. And it was during this time, I, I often say, I had a front row seat to everything I like and mostly dislike about pharmacy benefits <laughs> and the supply chain. And, you know, it was during this time, I just recognized I was never going to change the behavior of a PBM. How could I? You know, if I'm yeah. working on an audit or through procurement, I, I can't change the way a, a, a large carrier or PBM wants to price drugs or engage with their patients. And so what I decided to do with my CTO, uh, Ryan, and my COO, Joe, we left uh, my old company and we formed Capital RX. And really what we decided was, hey, we have a blank sheet of paper. Why don't we do this the right way? And I found myself running a PBM. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting way that basically you just saw what was wrong and then you hopped in it. And you know, I was going through your website, reading some things that you guys share, and I was a huge fan. I know Antonio Chacha, who listens to the podcast, has kind of promote not want to say promoted, but like shared what you guys are doing and kind of what you're doing with drug pricing. And one of the quotes that you had in there was drug pricing is broken. Was that really kind of the thing that you looked at and just said, you don't have to fix this, I have to fix this, and I think that the truth will prevail? Well, that's exactly it. If I had to pick one thing, I think you nailed it, which drug pricing is broken in the United States. And, you know, at the heart of it, I try and simplify this as much as possible. And the easiest way to simplify is that where do the drug prices go? The drug prices disappear. And I use this example quite often. It's just important, which is, if you think about the supply chain, when anything ships from manufacturing, you got a pallet of drugs, it has a price tag. Mm -hmm. you know, drugs have prices, and they ship to, lo and behold, wholesalers, and they have prices. Marisource Bergen, McKesson, take your pick. And then they sell to pharmacy chains and hospital systems, and go figure. There are still prices in the supply chain, and they purchase using unit cost. And then you get to the payer. And when I started in my old company reading my first PBM contracts for employer groups, I used to ask the dumbest questions. I used to be like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, yes, I'm the pharma guy, but help me here. Is there an amendment? Is there a schedule I'm missing to this contract? Where are the drug prices? And my colleagues would kind of laugh at me and be like, AJ, there are no drug prices. We get definitions and classification and we have schedules. 
based upon discounts over time. And, and I would be like, wait, wait a second. You're trying to tell me we have a 5,200-page contract with no drug prices in it, and we describe pricing? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know, we we ask, you know, the, the PBMs, and they won't give us pricing. And I said, are, are you sure? Because everybody in the supply chain has a price. Like right now, everybody in the supply chain has a price for drugs except for us. And they're like, well, you just can't get them. And I said, oh, we're going to change that. Lo and behold, you spend seven, eight years and you can't change anything. And so that was what frustrated me the most. I would hear subject matter experts, trained consultants say just the dumbest things. Like they would say things like, AJ, you can't have drug prices because drugs change price every hour of every day in every pharmacy for every drug. And I'm like, you actually believe this? I'm like, <laughs> Drug pricing in the United States is incredibly stable. It's like almost molasses slow in the supply chain. Like drug prices are maybe twice a year for brands, depending upon your purchasing schedule from generics. could be quarterly, but let's face it, on generics, it's just deflation. So I'm like, why can't – I'm like, what do you mean we can't get prices? And so this was the first thing I wanted to correct, which is this notion that drug prices don't exist. And – the other thing that I compare it to is a roulette wheel. Like it's this randomness of pricing. <laughs> and it's and it's not random. I mean, let's be frank. It's random to the poor patient that shows up. And I often say, are you today's winner or loser on the game show? What is your drug price? But the funny thing is it's designed this way. It is to maximize profits. And so, yes, drug pricing in the United States is completely broken. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting you describe that kind of winners or losers there because you can have the same PBM. So essentially it's like, you know, and I'm not gonna use you guys as the example because you're doing a little different, but like it could be Express Grips, CVS, Caremark, and the same PBM and then have totally different prices for people just because of the plan they're on and how much they pay the yep. pharmacy. Now if it's Medicaid and the government, that's one thing versus private, but like that will be totally different versus one private plan versus another private plan versus like another union based plan. And it's it's all completely different prices for the same quantity of medication with the same directions. It just depends on which plan you land in. Well, the really interesting thing, there are PBMs out there that say, oh, I'm transparent and I have pass-through pricing. I am like, but how could you have pass-through pricing when your contracts are different for all your clients? Mm -hmm. When you have MAC lists that create variability, you know, and no one gets to see what you're reimbursing the pharmacy. And so one of the things, that I wanted to cure when we created Capital Rx is this concept that people overlook all the time because they think, you know, you're trying to solve pricing with NADAC and things like that. I go, well, that's just part of it. The real component or the special part of what we do at Capital Rx is one, all of our clients get the same pricing. I don't care if you're a hundred thousand life case or a hundred life case, you have the same pricing with us. And, you know, it's funny is people always think they have a better deal. They're like, well, I have incredible pricing. I should never share my pricing with someone else. I go, you think you have great pricing. <laughs> like, like, let's just stop for a second. That is relative to whatever world you believe you are in. But the reality is, is one, there's better pricing. Two, because it's spread, you certainly don't have the best pricing. But the point that we wanted to make was to truly democratize pricing, which is everyone gets the same pricing. Your admin fee might be higher or smaller on a per member basis because it's obviously going to 
be more expensive, you know, to manage a small plan on a per member basis. So the admin fee might be slightly higher or slightly lower as a larger plan. But your drug prices are the same. This notion of changing drug pricing is is crazy to me. The second thing is single ledger reconciliation. So this is where we differentiate ourselves from everyone, which is we give the pharmacy, the plan, the patient, the PBM, all of us see the same transaction. And how can we do this? Well, because we don't keep anything. Like we actually don't keep anything, not one of these empty promises of what I charge you is what I reimburse the pharmacy, but don't look at the other transactions on a monthly basis. (laughs) It truly is a single ledger of reconciliation, and this was part of that promise, which is if you are going to stabilize pricing, democratize pricing, you have to create a fully transparent financial model. And to do that, you have to bind everyone to the same ledger. You can't have a 100 different ledgers. I mean, traditional PVM has thousands of different ledgers for each pharmacy, for each client, for each plant. You could never make sense of it. And so these were the first two components. The third was basically to liberate pricing. You know, I often like get frustrated just explaining it because think about it. If I'm in the supermarket and I'm walking down the aisle, it's not like suddenly all the prices disappear. I'm in the cereal aisle and all the prices disappear. And instead of having prices, you know, suddenly it just says it's 18 percent off on everything in this aisle. And I'm like, well, what are the prices? They're like, well, yeah. we'll figure that later. And what's also interesting when you think about drug pricing in this kind of environment where there are no prices and you don't know what's going to happen until you go to the register, you know, the other thing that we wanted to solve for was to free up the marketplace. Because the way a PBM tries to explain it to employer groups is they're like, only I can get you a good price. You need me to follow you around and help you get the right price at every pharmacy. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't need someone when I'm online shopping or I'm at a big box store or my supermarket. I don't need someone to tell me what a fair price for bananas is or for flip-flops. And I, I, I point this all the time. If someone tried to sell me gasoline for $20 a gallon, I would move on. But <laughs> right. because – PBMs don't provide price and they speak in this archaic language of discounts over off of nothingness, people can't understand what real prices are. And so that's what we started to figure out as well was like, why don't we liberate price, which is the way it works in a pharmacy right now. I call it the Tylenol effect. And I use this example as well, which is the way a pharmacy should work is I walk into a pharmacy, I reach for a bottle of Tylenol. And this magical thing happens. doesn't matter if I'm insured or uninsured. I work for the biggest company or the smallest. It's the same price. Amazing. Yeah, that's but if I walk so simple. The, but I walk yeah. to the pharmacy. You walk to the pharmacy, fill a script, everything changes. Welcome to the roulette wheel game. <laughs> and so what we wanted to do when we talk about liberating price is markets settle themselves. Like an efficient marketplace where buyers and sellers freely communicate on price. You don't need anyone there to hide price and explain only I can expose you to real price. In, <laughs> that's yeah. called price fixing. It sounds like basic so, economics, but yeah. <laughs> yes. So what we wanted to do is to do something that no one had ever tried before, which is the Tylenol effect, which is Mrs. Pharmacist, Mr. Pharmacist, you buy your inventory, tell us the price. 
And so we use reference price. We use NADAC. I use NADAC pricing only you know, because the federal government maintains it. It's public. It's free for anyone to look at. And so what we said to when we contracted with pharmacies, like, here's your reference price. You could beat it or equal it. It will give you fair reimbursement. But the whole point of it is I can't change price. We don't have MAC lists. I don't have clawback rights. And I can't artificially change this. I am bound to this set of rules. And this is so important because suddenly for the first time, a pharmacy could signal value and not be punished like right. a pharmacy could go you know you know like maybe i'm gonna sell torvastatin a little cheaper than you know what this is uh but i know i'm not going to be punished for it and that's the important part so when we talk about that last phase the liberation of price it's so overlooked and it's going to improve year after year it's going to allow people to say hey this is the value when you come into my store and you buy from us in our inventory, and these are the prices. <laughs> That's why stores should work. You know, and you hit that supermarket analogy a few ways. It works so well because you go down the go down the aisle, you see eighteen percent off, but eighteen percent off what? Right? Am I getting hose? And is it Whole Foods prices? Is it the local convenience store price? Like what? You know, what price am I paying here? And it's yeah. it's so many times Even you if walk it's in the, like frosted flakes. Is yeah. it the same frosted flakes? Is it like the budget frosted flakes that I buy on occasion, or is it the real deal? You know. <laughs> well, yeah, and so many times you know I always say like it's like a decision was made here when you walk down the the aisle at the grocery store and you see like a six pack of beer shoved in the bread aisle. You're like someone made a decision here. I don't know what it was that made them change their mind, but they made a decision. Probably they didn't have enough money, so they had to pick one of those two items, right? So you know it's the <laughs> similar idea. Exactly it. And I, I think the consumer oftentimes is completely discounted. People will say things like, well, the little consumer can't possibly handle all the big bad drug prices. And I would be like, look, there's maybe 120,000 active NDC 11s on any given day. If you look at the average plan, there's maybe 20,000 active NDCs. And if you go to the patient level, average person maybe is keeping track of two to three yeah. you know, prescriptions. Like, I'm pretty sure they could understand what a fair price is for two to three things. And I point this out all the time. We are wonderful shoppers. I don't care what age, your graphic, you're a good shopper. You go online, you go into a store, you figure out pretty quickly for the items you're getting what the right price is. So stop with this nonsense that no one can handle understanding drug prices. If I'm on a prescription, 20 milligrams of blank, 30 tablets a month, I'm pretty sure I'm going to know what the ne good price is the next time I go into the store. If you charge me $17 and I come back and it's $17.50, okay. You come back and you charge me $32, there's a problem. Yeah. And this is what the PBM industry doesn't want us to become they don't want us to become shoppers because to become a shopper suggests there's an efficient marketplace where prices are exposed and this this change is a coming if i point out every other industry in market operates this way the only reason why i think this one doesn't is one you do have an oligopoly sitting at the top of it and unfortunately there are a lot of people that feed that oligopoly that make money and continue to turn a blind eye to bad behavior.
yeah, that that definitely happens for sure. And I know a lot of people, if you're in a company trying to handle this and make decisions when it comes to HR and healthcare decisions, they've got a lot of other stuff on their plate. You know, they might see this as, okay, it's easy solution. They promised me good results. I'll just take it at their word. When really it's a lot more complicated what they're doing with the smoke and mirrors. And you kind of alluded to this, that it is an oligopoly with the three PBMs are just so ingrained. I think they're roughly 75, 80% of the market altogether and yep. they're they're driving a lot of like not just the market decisions but like prescriptions where they go mail order which pharmacies pharmacies out of the business how hard was it to enter a field like this when you're going up against like fortune four fortune five <laughs> whatever whatever fortune top 20 companies yeah i often say uh i never want to go backwards people would often say things like hey if you could go back in time what would you change and i'm in the last three years nothing <laughs> and they're like what do you mean you don't want to go back i go the first year we were in business, first of all, everybody makes fun of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and look, point taken. That's fair. People were like, oh, great, another PBM. Like, we needed that. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I needed another bag of trash. And you'd be like, oh, come on. Like, you know, and then you go, well, let me tell you why we're different. People would be like, yawn. I've heard it before. Yes, I'm sure you have a lovely differentiated product, blah, 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 blah. And it's really tough to sell when you are small. And why is it so tough? I mean, to be fair, first of all, you don't own your own paper. So you don't have your own network contracts, be it mail or specialty or retail. You know, you're basically licensing or leasing someone's network. Second thing is you're using someone's software or infrastructure. And this is so frustrating because especially if you are really dedicated to your customers, if you are focused on customer service, there is nothing worse than being helpless. I often say the first two years of running our PBM, it was like trying to drive from back seat with two little sticks on the steering wheel. <laughs> like you had zero control over what was happening. It was so difficult. You know, the best you could hope for was to be reactive and to, you know, go over the top, try and help the hundreds of things that were breaking literally on a quarterly basis because most PBM services are pretty like software where I would look at the daily claims file and it would never match monthlies. And I am like, how can same <laughs> system spit out different numbers? Yeah. I'm like, if, if these are the daily files and I add them up and we net out reversals and everything, it should equal what the total is, but it doesn't. And, you know, I could go down the list of hundreds of things, manual reports you would have to put together because, you know, you just didn't have the systems yet in place or you didn't have the ability or the resources. So, yeah, the first year being a PBM, Forget competing with the big three in the self-insured marketplace. And I want to be fair, 85% of the time, that's who you're up against. Yeah. Make no mistake. Statistically speaking, that's who lies at the end of the competition. But even you know before then, you're just dealing with how do you set all these things up and get them in place. Thankfully, we have a lot of experience, both myself and other people, and we each specialize in different areas. And we're also, you know, I think we're software engineers at the end of the day, you know. And so what we recognized is we needed to start writing software, not just any software, software that would help these workflows. You know, every time we see a friction point, let's document it. Let's figure out a way around that. 
every time we see something that is holding up a patient, um, slowing down prior authorization or, you know, creating friction with the pharmacist perhaps, or uh, something is not being communicated properly. If there's a change to a formulary to both the plan and the patient, you observe all these things and you say, okay, let's start writing software. Now, if you think you're going to do this in a year, you know, yeah. you're, you're mistaken. This is a multi-year mission. I said that it was going to take us probably three to five years to set up our enterprise platform, our first version. Um, and we did it in three. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know, our team, Ryan, our CTO, Joe, our chief operating officer, Matt, our president, and down the line, you know, so I could I could go on and name people for hours. From Karen to Sarah to Amber, take your pick. So many people, so many heroes in our organization that helped us get to this point. But the point of it was we found so many people like us. Even people that had worked in big PBMs that had grown frustrated or disillusioned by a lot of the framework that had been created, unfortunately, to prevent great service, to prevent efficiency around price. And so we called this the period of discovery. <laughs> you, know, you would discover more and more things that are really wrong with the industry, and we would promise ourselves we would fix it. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not a week from today, but it could be a year and so when we built out Judy, Judy is the name of our enterprise platform, this is where we started to turn the corner, where we suddenly started to say, hey, look at all of the efficiency we're gaining. Look at how we're automating these workflows. And so you have this, what I would say, hyper pricing structure, a clearinghouse model that I've kind of described, you know, liberating, democratizing price. And we don't really waste any time. And what I mean by that is traditional PBM, probably 50% of their headcount is just keeping the good times rolling. Yeah. You need to manage those Macs, need to manage the underwriting, need to look clawback, need to constantly cultivate the next quarter's earnings. I have none of those concerns. I make $0 as an organization on fulfillment. So what do we focus on? Better systems, better service, better outcomes. And this has been our rallying cry from like years two into three. And then lo and behold, we launch Judy, we launch our clearinghouse model, we move everyone to our own paper. Now for the first time, it's the product we envisioned all those years ago. And, you know, we had to wait three years, but we finally are offering the market the product we thought was going to be truly innovative. And so, the metrics that I'm proud of is that we maintain a 96 net promoter score with our customer base. We've never lost a customer. The other thing that I'm very proud of is when we look at cost savings, our entire book of business, but we did everyone under duty, everyone to our clearinghouse model, our drug spend year over year, including people that came to us from other PBMs, our entire book of business was negative 27% year over year through the half year. Wow. And that is a massive decrease. And so the industry average is plus 3% inflation. So to have negative 27, something's working. Yeah. You know, what is that? It's the efficiency we talked about, the efficiency of price where we don't take anything out of the supply chain. In addition, 
We have excellent clinical workflows. We resolve all of our PAs and all of our client and clinical issues. Presently, I think we sit at 50 hours. I'm trying to get that under 48, but that is record-setting pace in our industry. Yes, that is. (laughs) And I couldn't do it without our systems. I couldn't do it without the workflow we created. And the other thing that I found fascinating is I got the report for our prior authorization approval rates. It sits at 60 globally. That seems pretty Across high to me. the board. 60 is very low. The industry average is 89. Okay. So for us, you know, what we're able to do is to still have a thoughtful approach, engage with the patient. We can have a higher declination rate. However, at the same time, we have a high customer set score yeah. because what we're doing is we're going out of our way to engage with the patient, educate the patient. Patients are, are blown away when they get a phone call from us right after they get that first, let's just say it's their first specialty fill. And our clinical team is engaging with that patient to help them understand the, the workflow as well as their options. And I think this is so overlooked because we talk about alignment. So I, I, I have a slide I use quite often with clients, and I go, this is why we're able to beat your current PBM. All the things we've mentioned, but this is the one I always want you to visualize. Let's just say it's a $50 drug. On a $50 drug, our admin fee, remember I don't make money on spread or fulfillment, we make $5. On a $500 drug, we make $5. On a $50,000 drug, we make $5. On a $50,000 drug, a big PVM makes ten grand. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So who is going to make a more thoughtful decision process, engage with the patient and the physician and make sure this is the appropriate option. We are. Because I make the same amount of money at the end of the day on that $50,000 fill as I do on the $50 generic. And it's this alignment the industry needs. Yeah, you basically kind of clear out some of the rebates, some of the other nonsense, the crazy price differences you see on things like generic Truvada or Matnib I've mentioned on the podcast. (laughs) And yeah, you know, you're not seeing thousands of dollars spread pricing and things like this. And the person in the back end stuck paying it. You're keeping the cost low. You're basing off NADAC at all. When you look at it, it just makes sense. But, but I want to make this fair. If you're in the fulfillment business, you're a wholesaler or you're a pharmacy, that's fine. You, you, You can make money on spread. But if I'm the administrator and our team is in charge of clinical decisions and making decisions about your formulary and overrides, we can't have this conflict of interest. That's the problem is people that are making clinical decisions have a massive conflict of interest. They make more money on more expensive things and approving them as fast as possible. And so – We took a step back and said, you can't take the money because the problem in this industry is a lot of people start with good intentions and then they see the money and then they take it. Yep. And when you take it is when you have problems and people are saying, oh, aren't you the angel? I'm like, no, I'm not an angel. (laughs) I'm just a, a, a logical person. You can't have this conflict. And so if you remove it, you could still have a profitable, wonderful business you just can't be paid on variable compensation and still be in charge of clinical decisions. I genuinely believe that, and the proof point is what we see. 
You know, our competition is riding trend of plus three. We're at negative 27. And I think this is the important part that people miss all the time. I was on the phone with someone today, again, an industry expert. And I, I get a kick out of it when they say like crazy things like you see, so you seem so sure about the savings and what you could do. Like, are, is it always going to be that way? And I go, well, always, let's be frank. This is a reflection of price yep. as well as formulary and clinical decisions. So I can't predict the future, but if someone's telling me they're coming from a contract that's been renewed six times with the same carrier, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure we're going to save 30% plus in the first year. <laughs> there yeah. is no doubt in my mind. And, and that's crazy to me too because you know, like we basically have ingrained as a culture that drug prices go up. The new drug comes out, it's going to be expensive. You know, look at the new Alzheimer's med that came out, it's $56,000 a year. You know, like that's like what is absolutely purely ingrained in us. And really, why the PBMs are under a lot of pressure politically, like that we've seen anywhere from there's a Supreme Court case that kind of came down with PCMA versus Rutledge that's been referenced numerous times on the podcast. Yeah, sure. We've seen NADAC mentioned by uh, Chuck Grassley. We've seen states start putting and passing these PBM laws left and right. I think there's now almost 40 or maybe slightly over 40 states trying to adjust PBM laws. And the thing that I keep coming back to with everything you said is your model won't change if you look at what those laws, like what, how they're going to impact what's going to happen. Like I, there might be more paperwork for you to fill out. Maybe I don't exactly know on your end, but when I look at the way you're doing it and the way these laws are written or being proposed, I'm like, literally they're describing your model. And that's kind of what I see is so crazy. So what do you see going forward? Like, what does the future look like with these PBMs and all this legislation? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I, I think we always say we're operating in the future state. You, you hit it right on the head where effectively we're fee for service. I get my pricing from the federal government already. I use NADAC pricing. We basically can't change it. We report on a single ledger so all parties can see the financial transaction. So if you asked me where we're headed, this is it. And so we wanted to be out in front of it. And where we wanted to focus our time is our technology stack, how we engage with patients, how we message patients through our app, how we provide more thoughtful reporting, actionable insights. If someone wants to redesign their plan, thinking about what am I solving for? Am I solving for better outcomes, lower cost? Are these mutually exclusive concepts? And so this is what I think the future is going to move towards more, which is I think this is the last gasp of pricing. And what I mean by that, the last gasp is that this will be the last time people will be able to abuse pricing. It won't go away in the next year, Yeah, maybe two years, maybe three years, certainly not more than five. By the time we get to the end of five years from this conversation, the good old days of Mac and what I would say, artful manipulation of truck <laughs> pricing will be over. And so where are we going to move to? Well, you're going to have to get paid to do something. Go figure. Think about it right now. A PBM on traditional spread pricing gets paid more money by keeping you ignorant, in the dark, and unable to understand how much money they're Yep. I mean, imagine if you went to an attorney and you said, hey, uh, what's your hourly rate? And they're like, oh, it's free. I just keep a little bit on your business. <laughs> and I'll be like, what? What? What, what, do you, what do you Like, 
no, no, I want the hourly rate. They're like, no, no, no hourly rate. It's free. I just keep a little bit in between. And, and it's such a crazy idea. And so I think that's going to go away and we're going to turn to what are you doing? Are you managing my population? Are you providing better outcomes? Am I having a healthier workforce? Are my dependents living healthier lives? And I think that's where we're headed. And I won't predict where the future of we call human capital is going to go. I mean, one of the reasons why we're called Capital Rx is, yes, we believe in efficient capital markets. And two, we believe human capital is the most valuable asset of any company. And I think once you get rid of price and you stop looking at pharmacy in a silo, you suddenly have the ability to elevate the conversation and actually make a statement that Healthcare is an investment, not a cost. Let me prove that to you on how I manage your patients. And let's define an acceptable outcome. What am I solving for? So that's what gets me excited at the end of the day. Phase one is, yes, helping tear down the wall of the opacity and the inconsiderate pricing structure that unfortunately plagues the American public today. But the second phase of it is, now let's redirect that energy. If pricing is pretty much standardized or open and efficient, you can recognize what a good price is now because we actually are communicating pricing. Go figure. Uh, Let's talk about how I engage with the members and the plan to create healthier populations. And that's what healthcare should be. Yeah, that's. I, I don't see anybody who would disagree with that. And if they do, I'm probably gonna have a long response to anything they say to that. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And I, I like the way that you got your name Capital RX from that. That's that's pretty unique and like a double entendre that isn't a joke, but like a true root cause meaning to it. And I, I really like that. So, uh, hey, I'm gonna wrap up here, but I do have to ask you two questions. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, you not being a pharmacist and being more of an industry guy. This could be a little interesting. So if you could change one thing about pharmacy that isn't a law, what would it be and why? Yeah, well, I'm going to get technical on you, and you can tell me if this counts or not. So I always like to point out my father was a pharmacist, and my grandfather was a pharmacist. My uncle was a pharmacist, so I come from a long line of independent pharmacies and pharmacists. But I think like most kids, you tell them what to do, you kind of rebel, and so you don't quite get a pharmacist, you get a claim processor out of it. <laughs> um, but if I had to change one thing about pharmacy, uh, it's vertical integration, Okay. the dark side of it. And what I mean by that is the weaponization of the Affordable Care Act, particularly around the global accumulator. Something that was designed to be a godsend for people like, hey, if you have uh, a deductible for pharmacy and a deductible for medical, we'll make it count towards your global deductible. Like, that sounds reasonable. Great. Well, what happens in vertical integration? The carriers rub their hands together, some of them, not all, I want to point this out, and they go, well, wait a second. What happens if I just say no to those other parties? Nobody can leave. Yeah. So a great example is we'll bid on a pharmacy account and we'll be the winner. Great. We won. They'll be like, oh, but the medical carrier is X and you're not integrated with them yet. I go, okay, uh, I'm willing to integrate. Oh, um, well, we're super busy. 
I'm like, um, it's your file format. What do you mean you're busy? <laughs> like, just tell me the cadence and tell me what we need to do. This is a junior engineer, maybe three days of work. And they're just like, well, we're tied up for six months. Great. Um, thankfully, it's only April. We have plenty of time for a one-month start. Oh, um, it's going to cost you $400,000. I'll pay it. Great. Oh, you're going to pay it too. Um, uh, hold on. Hold on. Um, well, if you take the pharmacy out of the medical, we're going to have to create, um, a carve out penalty. Yes. Yes. That is the term. We're going to call it a carve out penalty. Wait, wait, what's a carve out penalty? Well, because we're no longer doing the work of the pharmacy. We're going to charge you more money. What? (laughs) Wait, wait, like, let's put this in perspective. If I have cable at my house, you know, and I'm like, you know, I enjoyed HBO, but Game of Thrones isn't playing anymore. I'm going to cancel HBO. What would happen if people canceled HBO and the cable company said, I'm going to charge you more money now? Yeah, (laughs) doesn't make any sense. Well, that's that's the carve out penalty. And I sit there and I'm like, what? And you know what the funny thing is? The exact amount that I'm saving the employer group by carving out the the pharmacy Guess what the carve-out penalty is? The dollar for dollar. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, okay, so let's get beyond that. I've gone all the way on this journey. Every single one of these things is real life. You get to the final stage and you say, okay, I'm going to pay your $400,000. I'm going to wait six months. I'm going to accept your carve-out penalty they're still moving to me, you bad, bad person. And then they say, no. But wait, what? No, we changed our mind. We're just not going to connect with you. What? Yeah, yeah that sounds it. like them. Yeah, and, and I'm just like, just to be clear, I have to transmit to them as well. I don't charge them for my file feed and yeah. my information. I go, let me get this straight. My much smaller company can do this in an hour's worth of work, and I don't charge you for it. But you tell me it takes six months, $400,000, and probably millions of dollars, especially if we're dealing with 20 30% savings. This is why healthcare doesn't change fast enough, because unfortunately, there are rules in place or things that occur in healthcare that were never designed to thwart progress, but does. Yep. And this, I want to take a goddamn flamethrower to. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone does, especially with how you explained that. And uh, it's if interesting FTC, seeing your side. If the FTC or members of the DOJ are listening, please, please contact me. This is the definition of anti-competitive behavior. It is the tying of two products together. It's on the FTC's website. If you'd like an example of what anti-competitive behavior here would be, tying of two products together. Well, when you're tying medical to pharmacy and you have the ability to tell everybody no, and I'm going to charge absurd amount of money, to remember, to do less work, you're not administrating pharmacy anymore, and you still want to charge everyone more money. This needs to change. And for the listeners, I will be tagging both the FTC and DOJ in this episode when I post it on social media. So if you want to do the same, reach out to them. We have seen a lot of pharmacists reach out to the FTC recently, and they are 
supposedly looking into some of these things. And I, I'm not going to hold my breath because I'm not an Olympic swimmer. And I don't think I can hold it that long. But it is what's supposed to be happening in the near future under the current administration. Well, I'm excited with the Biden administration. And I've seen a couple of different members uh, signal that they are looking into vertical yeah. integration in some other areas. And I would love I have dozens of these examples and basically what happens we lose the business the employer never captures the savings and healthcare continues in the same horrible direction and the price gouging marches on yep (laughs) yep yep all right last question before i let you go if you could change one law in pharmacy federal or state what would it be and why i'm gonna go with the all right no one likes more regulation many times i just want to preface before i say this yep However, if I could change anything, I would love for the federal government to once and for all set a price for all drugs in the United States. So NADAC is an excellent step. I would like them to complete the job. And what I mean by that is, and we wrote an article about this, which is we just need every pharmacy to report into this. And my point is, if you are receiving payments from the federal or state government for Medicare or Cade, I think it should be part of it. You should report in. And so the reason why I say this is we need to finalize and clarify price once and for all. And so if I could change one law, I would like to change a law that basically states for an ADAC, if you take a check for care or Cade as a pharmacy, guess what? You got to report back your pricing. Yep. There's a lot That's of other things we have to do like it to for, so that makes sense to me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, in the night, you know, the interesting part is, you know, hundreds of pharmacies already report in. Most of them independents in smaller chains, and I think it's time that the rest of the supply chain kind of stepped up on the fulfillment side and reported pricing, and that's everybody. And I think it's an easy way to do it. You get a check from the federal government, be it state or federal, you've got a report. Yeah. And this would go a long way for the consumer. Oh, and if I had to have like a, a runner up, we could have an entire segment. We should do a follow up one on usual and customary pricing in the US. All right. I'll probably take you up on that a little bit later date, but I think that because yeah, I know how deep that one goes and I'll have to do a little bit digging myself, but uh, we'll get a panel. You know, we should get a bunch of us on I, and then we could go through and do it as a panel. I think you and Antonio Chacha alone could probably just do that. I won't even, I'll just sit out. It'll get you two just going back and forth on it because I know, I know him and the kind of the work he does there is just amazing and he'll be able to explain it much better than I can. But yeah, I know that. That would be a good follow-up episode for the listeners. So something to look forward to, hopefully, in the next couple months. Probably somewhere after I clear 100 episodes with this. But uh, where can people find you if they want to reach out in a format that you'll kind of respond or you, you know, if they want to follow what you're doing? Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm a pretty active LinkedIn person. I respond usually same day. I try to clear you know, most things through. So easiest way to, to flag me down in real time, uh, LinkedIn. Um, I guess I'm doing an ad for Microsoft and LinkedIn right now, but yeah, no, I, I find it a very useful tool set for, you know, communication. So if someone wants to reach me, uh, I'm AJ Loyagano and you can find me 
uh, you'll know that you're the, you found the right person because uh, I work for Capital RX. <laughs> yeah, and I'll put that in the show notes too for listeners. That's actually how I contacted you, and we just kind of rolled with this, and now we have a podcast yeah. coming out of it. So, just to kind of show the fruits of that. So, again, thanks for coming on the podcast, AJ. This has been awesome. I love your look on it. I love your take on it, and honestly, I I love what you do cause just because it is transparent. I really enjoyed the conversation, Eric. Anytime. Awesome, and listeners, if you can. Share and tag people in this. This is a good episode. If you want to start calling out, like we said, the FTC, yeah. the DOJ, start sharing and tagging them, tag AJ, do whatever you can to kind of, I, I don't know how viral something like this is obviously going to go, but you know, when I, I get a couple thousand listeners in episodes, so I'm sure some people will share this and hopefully no, we can, uh, we can help kind of put this out there in the ether that someone might hear it in the right ears. Like, heck, send it to your congressman. If nothing else, you can send an email and link, link the show in there. I, I get a few that listen once in a while. So uh, as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.